This morning we'll be reading from the words which the King of Glory has laid out on scripture, in the Scriptures for us. We'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. And you'll be able to find that on page 319 of your pew Bible. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the lands of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look, now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there, and perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met some young woman going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. 
For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will, tell, I will let you go and will tell you all that's in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took, off, t- took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. So far. The text for today, the passage we'll be focusing on, is taken from verse 17. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever been in a situation where you ask someone to do something and they just seem to sit back and not do it? This seemed to be the position of Samuel in the eyes of the people at this point in time. Judge after judge had ruled over different regions of Israel prior to our passage today. But these judges have never managed to keep foreign powers out for long. Nations around Israel took advantage of the fact that they were often fractured and weak. Now, Samuel, as the final judge and prophet, uh, a prophet in Israel, he's getting old. His sons are corrupt, they're not respected at all, and they're unable to keep the nation united. And so the future seems pretty bleak for the people of God. So the Israelite leaders all gathered together and they confronted Samuel. Give us a king, 
they demand. Now, in a good and obedient life before God, Israel could have lived contentedly under his rule. As farmers and as citizens, they could have peacefully carried out their day-to-day lives under the protection of God as their king. That is what he promised, after all, before they entered into the land. But it was their own disobedience and failures that led them to where they are today. And then they tried to get themselves out of the mess that they've made by making a decision to have their own king who will pull things together. They're trying to patch together together the world that seems to be falling apart around them with their own resources. They have chosen to dictate to the man of God rather than have the man of God come to them, rather than humbly coming before him and asking for his guidance. This sounds a bit like us, doesn't it? We can get ourselves into a mess because of our sin, and instead of stepping back and humbling ourselves, taking ownership of our sin, repenting and resetting, coming back before the word of God, we try to drive ahead and and fix it ourselves and quite often make things worse. We have a perfectly logical solution as long as everyone cooperates and everything works out according to plan. And so instead, we dictate the terms of how we're going to get out rather than coming before the Word of God. Now, angered and saddened by their demand and recognizing it for what it is, a people who are seeing the consequences of their sin, seeing their nation falling apart, seeing everything go to pieces, but not really repenting, Samuel goes to God. And God points out to him, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me. But go, obey their voice, and at the same time, solemnly warn them of everything that a king will do. And so in the chapter immediately prior to our passage today, Samuel promises the people that he will look for a king for them. And then he sends them home. But what happens? It must have been frustrating to the people of Israel to watch Samuel at work. He doesn't send out runners across the entire country. He doesn't hold contests or competitions among the leaders. He doesn't have the tribal leaders appoint their most diligent rulers and have an election among them. He just sits back and he waits. Time passes and he sits and waits. He's sitting and waiting for God's timing. And God comes through. And so we're introduced in a passage to a man who is wandering around the countryside with a servant looking for some lost donkeys. And we'll see this first part of four-part introduction to the reign of Saul under the following theme and points. The king who searched for donkeys. And we'll see, first of all, a king from God's hand, and second, a king to restrain God's people. Now, as we come into our passage today, we look at it, and it might seem a little bit odd to us. We might ask ourselves, 
why do we even have this in the Bible? There are some modernistic theologians who look at this passage and they just dismiss it as an origin story. They put it on the same level as, say, a Marvel character who is coming to his own as a superhero. All it is to them is a way to legitimize the reign of Saul. But we know, and God teaches us, that Scripture is God-breathed. It's His Word, and it's true. It's real history. And it's placed here for us as the, for us as the people of God to learn from. That being said, that being said, how does this fit in? It seems a little bit unusual. It seems almost a departure from the rest of the book where we hear about these battles and where we hear about the governing of Samuel and we hear about the work of the kings that follow after. It even seems like a break from the rest of the book to have a little story about a rambling journey of a man who is looking for his donkeys with an oddly detailed conversation with his servant about those lost donkeys and how his dad is going to get worried if he's been gone for so long. But this is the way that God works. God was teaching his people a lesson. The people of Israel were not trusting completely in the Lord. And they saw a king as being a solution to all of their problems. If only they could get a king like the nation or nations around, they would be okay, they said. But they needed to be taught that despite the fact that they wanted someone through whom they would be treated as equal to the nations around, despite the fact that they wanted to take control of their own destiny, God was ultimately the one who was in control. Saul and his servant are then introduced to us. These two men, not able to find the donkeys, are now certain that Saul's father will be worried more about him than the donkeys. There's good reason for that. It would have been very reasonable to think that thieves or wild animals had perhaps been behind the disappearance, and either of these could be dangerous for Saul and the servant. But these are valuable animals in the ancient world, and so they don't want to give up too easily. So before they head back, they decide to make a last-ditch effort to stop in with the man of God. And if he doesn't know where the donkeys are, they'll go home. But unknown to them, God himself has been making preparations as well. You see, all things come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. It was he that caused these valuable animals to wander in the first place, causing no end of grief to Saul. It was he that caused Saul and his servant to drift aimlessly, looking for some sign, and then letting them eventually become so frustrated and hopeless that they're even willing to go as far as bother the prophet and spiritual leader of Israel in hopes that maybe they'll find something. And it was he that, when the time was right, told Samuel to prepare a place of honor and be ready to receive Israel's new king. Today, God would choose in his providence to provide a deliverer for his people in their situation by 
using the instrument of some wandering donkeys. Just as God always had, he would continue to deal with his people in the way that he had promised. He would continue to rebuke them through the nations and grant them deliverance when they repented. And he would continue to look ahead to the greater king that he had in store for them, the one for whom he truly made the kingship, designed the kingship, for whom he was preparing the people, the coming Messiah who would grant them true deliverance and usher in a kingdom without end. But in the meantime, he was moving and preparing the way for the coming of Saul. This was a good reminder for the people of Israel, and it's a good reminder for us today as well. There are many reasons for us to be concerned in our country and in our world. Just as the nation of Israel had pressures around them, pressures from the foreign gods around them, pressures from political powers, we too have pressures. As we've seen in the last 20 years, the pressure of a secular world is increasing on Christian communities. And there's a growing demand that Christians get in line with the morals, with the dictates of secular society or face the consequences. Schools being shut down. Opportunities to foster or adopt being taken away and more. It can be unnerving to live in a society like this. More than that, we have our own day-to-day cares as well. But here we are reminded again that all things come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. He is the one who is directing. He is the one who is guiding. Whether good or bad, God is in control, teaching us, directing us, rebuking and loving us as is necessary, and leading us to fix our eyes on the king that he provides, leading us to recognize his kingship and rule. He's there by our sides and he's there working all things for our ultimate good, our salvation. And this brings us to our second point, a king to restrain God's people. Now when Samuel first lays his eyes on the man in our passage today, he sees a man who on the surface level really does have kingly potential. Saul, the son of Kish, the descendant of a powerful Benjamite, who had been a man of wealth and influence. Never mind Saul's protest later where he says, am I not of the least of the tribes of Benjamin? His family line was a respected one. But it was more than just his family line that gave him kingly potential. We read that he was a handsome man and the the people looked up to him physically as well. He literally stood head and shoulders above everybody else in the nation. He attracted every eye regardless of how you might feel about him personally. This was, from the outward view of it, the kind of king that the nation of Israel was searching for. And really, was that such a bad thing? You might be surprised to know that despite Samuel's grief and disappointment, kingship itself wasn't the problem. God had, in fact, worked kingship into his plan for redeeming his people and ultimately redeeming all of creation. 
Already in the earliest days, God had made man a ruler, a king of sorts. And he spoke to Adam, the first man, telling him in Genesis 1 verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man's rule over creation was part of the whole system that God had created for his people. And the system of rule, of governing, was described by himself as very good. Later on, as we move through Scripture, in Genesis 17, Abraham and Sarah are told that they will produce kings. And the same promise was in the covenant that was passed on to their grandson Jacob. Later again, we see the promise that God will use another king in his plan to redeem Israel in their, later in their history as well. Jacob, who was the father of the Israelite nation, prophesied to his son Judah in Genesis 49 verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. God had planned to use kingship as part of his redemptive plan, with the ultimate kingdom being the kingdom of heaven that he would usher in, ruled over by his son. This was the kingdom into which he would bring all of his people. And so when we see God tell Samuel, this is the man that I've chosen as my king, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not like kingship itself was inherently a bad thing. But with the very next words, we see where the heart of the problem truly lies. We read, there he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Reign, you think? That doesn't sound particularly bad. But the word that's used for reign here, which the NIV translates as govern, is not the usual word for ruling. King David, for example, uses one of the more usual words in 2 Samuel 23, saying, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. This is a much more positive word than the Hebrew word we find in our passage today. Even the Hebrew words that are translated elsewhere as reign, for example, throughout the book of Kings, these are not the same word. The word that we see here today is one that means to oppress or to restrain, as the ESV puts it. It's the idea of one who puts a bridle into the mouth of a stubborn animal. Israel's demand for a king was the sign of a nation that did not have the patience to wait on the timing of the Lord. And so the Lord offered them something good, but because they wanted what he offered on their terms and on their timing, in the same way that the other nations around them had it, he would need to give them a king who would be a restraint on them. We can see their words in 1 Samuel 8. Their demand is, we will have a king over us. Verse 19, that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Saul would have to struggle with these natural tendencies of his people for his whole reign long. It would be difficult for him to rule justly and righteously as that's not what the people wanted in the first place. They didn't want someone who was specifically godly, but they wanted someone who affirmed them. 
They wanted somebody who advanced their cause. Again, we see that this isn't something that just Israel struggled with. Let's ask ourselves today, people of God, we have a king. What do we want in our king? You see, when we call ourselves Christians, we're claiming to be under the rule of Christ. We're saying, we want a king. He is my king, and I find my identity in him. But how far does that claim go for us? What's your response to having Jesus Christ as your king? As Christians, we can sometimes slip into dangerous waters when we simply settle into our spiritual lives and coast, simply pursuing our own priorities. This can be especially a danger in our circles today. Many of us have been born and raised as Christians. Many here today have had a Christian education, gone into a relatively Christian workplace. You're in a country that by and large is still pretty good to Christians, even though it's no longer really Christian in itself. Such a shell of protection is in itself a beautiful thing. We're shielded from many things that can cause great harm. But it can lead to the danger of becoming what's called a cultural Christian. One who is a Christian in name and culture and who wants a king to rule over them but doesn't really want to submit to that kingship. One who wants all the benefits that comes with it but doesn't want to submit to that kingship. With that can come the thought, I'll have him as my king as long as it's convenient to me. I'll have him as my king as long as he's pursuing the same things that I am, as long as he has the same priorities that I do. And that's the kind of king the people of Israel were hoping for. When the king God had chosen for them actually appeared, many responded with disgust and with bitterness because he didn't measure up to be the kind of king they wanted. And we'll see that in the chapters ahead. Because of who they were, Saul indeed had to become a king to restrain them. Ultimately, that was all he could do. Yes, as God promised, he became a deliverer in some small sense for the people, but he couldn't save them from their biggest problem. He couldn't save them from themselves. For that, Israel would have to wait until the fulfillment of God's promise. A king who would be the true deliverer of Israel. A king who would deliver them from themselves. The very same king who delivers us from ourselves. King Jesus. Beloved, do you want King Jesus in the same way that the people of Israel wanted a king? Do you want King Jesus in the same way that much of the world today sees him? That's a safe Jesus who doesn't really have power to change me. A Jesus who simply affirms me where I am. Is that the kind of Jesus you want? Or do you see King Jesus as he truly is? The Savior, yes, but also the judge of all the earth. The one who has power to transform you. When it does come to your sin, are you just looking for a king who will simply restrain you, who, keep you, who will keep you from bad decisions, and who will keep your life comfortably, consequence-free? 
When you come to King Jesus, are you seeking deliverance from just your circumstances? Or are you seeking deliverance from your own sins, your inclinations, your shortcomings, your very self? This is King Jesus. He doesn't just affirm us and leave us unchanged. And he doesn't simply just restrain us. After all, what would we do with a deliverer who simply restrained us, who held us back from what we wanted to do? Israel had a king who could restrain them and bring the nation together by force, but he couldn't change their hearts, and we see where that led them. We, however, have a king who's so much more than that. We don't have a king who is a constant restraint on his people, who is a heavy yoke on their necks, but we have one who has said, come to me all you who are weary, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when we ourselves come to him, when we truly come to him, when we submit to him completely, then we come to a deliverer who transforms us from the inside out. He changes my heart. He delivers us even from ourselves. And he gives us a new heart and a new direction, setting us on the path to eternal life. Beloved, as we see God's fatherly hand at work in history and at work in the world today, let's be reminded of the fact that he is really in control. And let's seek to submit ourselves in our entirety to him. Let's fix our eyes on the king who has compassion on us and who delivers us, not just as a king who holds us back, but as a king to whom we'll surrender our whole heart that we may be transformed. Amen.